I'm Abby Nemec, and this is A Time for Horses. Many people have sighed for the good old days and regretted the passing of the horse. But today, when only those who like horses own them, it is a far better time for horses. C.W. Anderson You're listening to a podcast about people and horses. Each episode, I take a look at a true story that connects somehow to horses, horse people, or the horse business. I'll tell you the story, sure, but I'm also going to tell you why I think it's a story worth telling. So, set the cruise control, step onto the treadmill, pick up a pitchfork, or pour another cup of coffee. I've got a story to tell you. Shake it! Break it! Episode 3, Pride of the Marines. This is the second part of a three-part story about a real-life warhorse who provided critical support to the United Nations troops during the Korean War. This support was a key contribution in holding the line of resistance and, as a result, to the outcome as it stands today. If you want to jump into the middle of this story, that's fine, but it may be a little confusing at first. If you prefer your stories in the order in which they happened, you should probably pop this episode off and go back and listen first to episode two, which is the beginning of the story. You can find it at atimeforhorses.com forward slash flame of the morning. We'll be right here when you get back. If you don't mind a spoiler or having things a little out of order, carry on listening. Now, I've drawn on four books and a variety of online resources in compiling this story. I've identified or linked to them all in the show notes, which you can find at atimeforhorses.com forward slash pride of the marines. Last time, I told the story of a pony-sized Korean racehorse, barely fully mature, who was drafted on a moment's notice into the United States Marines in late October of 1952. The little sorrel mare took to basic training like a champ, learned everything she needed to know about life on a military post, and became the absolute darling of her unit. She even liked the chow for the most part. There's also some background in the last episode about the war, the strategies, and the tactics that the Marines were dealing with, and the little horse as well. The position the Marines were holding at this time was called the Jamestown Line. It was the portion of the United Nations Main Line of Resistance, or MLR, located to the east of Panmunjom, where peace talks were proceeding that would eventually decide the fate of the divided country of Korea. The new recruit was named Reckless, after the 75mm recoilless rifles whose ammunition she had been enlisted to carry. The shells weighed more than 20 pounds each, and the logistics of the terrain and the fighting meant that the troops had to hand-carry them up and down some pretty imposing hills from a protected ammunition supply point, or ASP, to the firing sites on the business side of the hilltops and ridgelines. This was back-breaking work, and Lieutenant Eric Pedersen, who commanded the 5th Marines Recoilless Rifle, or RR units, did not like waiting for ammunition to arrive while his rifle squad sat like sitting ducks and the enemy crept closer and closer. He was the one who decided a horse would provide a little help toward solving their problem. Little did he know. After a slightly unorthodox basic training, Reckless had seen her first action. There was considerable debate, as you might imagine, as to how well she was going to handle it, but when the time came, she proved her worth. Janet Barrett tells the story this way in her book, They Called Her Reckless. Her recounting of the event has Sergeant Joe Latham at the mayor's side. He was Reckless's drill instructor for basic training. Quote, Latham did not have the luxury of choosing a good time for their arrival. The guns needed shells, and now Reckless was on the job. No sooner had she stepped into the clearing than the recoilless rifle let loose, sending its blast of firepower across a valley and its backblast across the ridge. Latham held firm to her halter, not sure what to expect. 
He stroked her neck, but whatever he said to her was drowned out by the roar. In an instant, Reckless was airborne, all four feet off the ground. The weight on her back seemed like nothing as she jumped. Her eyes grew huge, her ears flicked back and forth. She landed, but within seconds another blast tore out of the rifle. This time, only her front feet pawed the air. With the third blast, she pranced a little, all four feet on the ground. Then one more blast, the fourth, all this within a couple of minutes, and there she was, her head down, her lips working across the ground, searching for something to eat. End quote. That was the one and only day that Reckless spooked at live fire. Story after story details the little mare's escapades in the coming weeks after her first live action. She was given a hat by some Australian soldiers the men had spent some time with, but it seems she thought it was undignified and she wouldn't wear it. When the guys persisted, she ate it one night while nobody was looking. She left the hat band, though. Reckless interrupted a poker game one night and ate a few chips off the table. Exactly whose chips she cashed at that moment will vary depending on whose version of the story you're reading. And, of course, Christmas came and went, accompanied by apples, carrots, cake, beer, and plenty of cola. The doctor set a rule that Reckless was only allowed two Cokes a week for her health. She developed an appetite for anything left unattended, including cigarettes. She liked them best outside the pack. During a relief period, when the 5th Marines were moved into a reserve position, Reckless was kept busy stringing communication wire. It's said she could lay more comm wire than 10 Marines, human ones anyway. When their reserve time was over on the 25th of January, the 5th Marine Regiment was moved to the east to relieve the 1st. From there, they would support combat outposts East Berlin, Berlin, Vegas, Reno, and Carson, and Ava at the western end. By this time, the young Marine had earned herself the rank of corporal. Author and Lieutenant Colonel Andrew Gear said in his book, Reckless Pride of the Marines, quote, Reckless went to battle with her regiment and performed in a manner to earn the love and esteem of a corps of men to whom bravery is the rule rather than the exception. For the little red horse, the days of pampering were over. She carried packload on packload of equipment into the lines. There were small arms ammunition, grenades, rations, sleeping bags, and communication wire to move forward. There was barbed wire for her own pasture. End quote. In the lines, there were no real provisions for Reckless, so she made do with whatever was available. If she were forward at nightfall, she ate sea rations and slept with the men. If incoming was heavy, they took off their flak jackets and gave them to her. She was becoming a real Marine in more than just her work ethic, and her fellow Marines treated her accordingly. It was during this time that Reckless had occasion to work with Marines that she hadn't met yet. While she had worked previously with the 1st Battalion, she now was living and fighting with the 2nd. Her reputation grew, and with time she became the pride of the 1st Division, and then later, the pride of the Marine Corps. Reckless's job was to supply the covering fire from the recoilless rifles, and as they were valuable weapons in this hilly country, she came to know the routine for this location pretty well. The best way I can think of for you to understand the work that she was to do from this post is to use Andrew Gear's description of the round trip she had to make. Keep in mind she was carrying a full load of ammunition. I'm going to start where he describes the general area. Quote, the main battle positions were 400 meters to the north of the feeding grounds, but the pasture was masked from enemy observation and direct fire by a spur of Hill 120. This section of Korea was covered with tumbled-down rocky hills without the stature to be called mountains. They were the foothills leading into the north-south spine of mountains that bisects Korea. 
The pasture was within easy mortar range of the Chinese, who were in the habit of lobbing exploratory rounds into such pockets. Without aerial observation to correct or direct the fire, it was blind shooting. To guard against such danger, the platoon built an open-faced bunker, the opening to the friendly south, in which Reckless could take shelter if the incoming did become too severe. The ASP from which Reckless would fill her pack with high-explosive charges was 300 meters south and east of the pasture. As with all ammunition dumps, it was tucked away in defilated position behind a sharp finger of an open canyon. The trail leading to the ASP from the pasture was an easy grade, bordering what had once been a rice paddy. Two hundred meters of this, then a sharp swing to the left, and the climb was made to cross the finger and drop sharply into the box canyon. The return to the firing sites involved the stiff, shoulder-hunching climb out of the canyon, followed by the four-footed braking on the descent onto the paddy trail, a right turn and the easy trail skirting the pasture. 200 yards east of the feeding area, there was a stiff, narrow, twisting trail rising at a 45-degree angle to the first ridge line of Hill 120. Reckless preferred to meet this obstacle with a racing start. With shell canisters threatening to jump from their rope moorings, she would charge the hill, Coleman having cast her free to make her own speed. She would just make the top in her final lunge and stand breathing heavily until her guide scrambled to her side. Usually, she took off as she saw him nearing the top and made her way without guidance to one of the guns. The gun crew would see her coming and would call out to her. It was seldom that circumstances were so adverse or tense that someone didn't have a piece of hard candy for her. As far as she was concerned, the tinfoil-wrapped hard candy was the best part of sea rations. All the way back to the ASP, she would suckle on it. End quote. During the late winter of 1953, a series of daylight raids were being planned against the communist forces to halt their creeping offensives. There were a number of tactical reasons that they expected these raids to be effective, including the obvious visibility afforded by daylight. Aircraft, artillery guns, and mortars would be able to work together to support the raiding parties, and covering fire and smoke from the RR squads would be important to their success. These raids occurred regularly between January and March 1953, and the troops performed rehearsals in advance of the actions. Each of the raids had its own objective— and based on the Marine Corps command diaries from this time period, it's clear that they were very busy. Though the records from this time period don't make any specific reference as to how the RR platoons supplied the ammunition to the recoilless rifles, the rifles themselves are frequently mentioned as having been involved in support for the raids. Of course, when the 75mm recoilless was in action, so was Reckless, and if they were up on the firing line all day, then Reckless packed ammunition from dawn to dusk. At first, the long, steep trail from the ASP to the firing sites would leave her a little winded after each climb. Eventually, that went away. It's hard to figure out from the command diaries which raid gear is referring to, but he did report that on one particular day, the little mare made 15 round trips— carrying more than a ton of ammunition to the rifles. And when I say a ton, I mean a ton. 2,000 pounds. On February 25th, she was part of the successful Operation Charlie, which supported the raid on Hill Detroit to the north. To reach the front line on this day, Reckless had to cross 300 yards of rice paddy. The firing was heavy, and Reckless carried nearly 3,500 pounds of ammunition over an estimated 20 miles. She must have been pretty fast on the flat, I guess, since this particular raid was over before lunch. At first, these stories surprised me, until I considered that Reckless had been conditioning for this exercise since the end of October, a good three months her work had started light and slow during basic training, gradually increasing in duration and intensity as the weeks passed. 
Like any athlete in training, or any Marine, she had had hard days and easy days, hard weeks and easy weeks, carrying progressively more weight over progressively longer distances, with either more climbing or at a faster pace each time. I suspect it also helped that so much of the time, Reckless was also allowed to set her own pace. A good endurance athlete develops a sense of just how much to push themselves and when. They alternate a hard push with a breather. It's called interval training. And the recovery period after each workout makes them stronger. Another thing I've enjoyed about reading the accounts of the guys who were actually there is that they all comment on how aggressively Reckless attacked the hills, preferring a running start when she had the room and the strength to make one. I know that feeling. The horse looks up at the hill and says, here we go, and gives a good sprint to start up a steep hill. I'm certain it's easier for them because of the way they all want to do it. Corporal Reckless knew how to climb a hill. She also had good support in the paddock. Barrett describes the way Reckless was taken care of by her unit. Quote, on tough work days, like the ones involving Operations Clambake, Charlie, and Item, the guys paced Reckless as much as they could, giving her periodic breaks for water and feed, pulling the saddle off and toweling her down, then checking her over, particularly her legs, to make sure she hadn't scraped herself in the underbrush as she plowed through it. She was hauling four to six shells, at a top weight of over 120 pounds, and once unloaded, ran down the hill for more. At day's end, she was exhausted, but she kept going as long as she was needed. End quote. During the raid on Outpost Detroit, Reckless made 24 round trips from the ASP to the guns, carrying six rounds each time, well over 3,000 pounds. The last trip, she had to make two runs at the hill to make the climb but she wouldn't quit. The guys gave her a bran mash at the end of the day and a rub down and covered her with a blanket before she went to sleep. In all of these daylight raids throughout the late winter 1953, Reckless was an important part of the action. It wasn't just that she did a job that spared some of the men. She carried so much ammunition, so fast, that the RR units were able to keep up the pressure continually using smoke, high explosives, and white phosphorus. This was critical to those infantry at the front who were working so hard to hold this increasingly important defensive line. To try to accomplish the same thing without her would have meant a continuous stream of men carrying shells the full distance with others resting so that they could spell each other, like some kind of giant fire brigade. It's just an amount of manpower that the Marines simply didn't have available, and they wouldn't have put it to that purpose if they had. Between these planned raids, the work was fairly light for the RR platoon, and Reckless got herself into more mischief. One night, she left her bunker and walked forward to the main line where an infantry company was holed up. They fed her their sea rations and had great fun, until the incoming fire began. The men covered her with their flak jackets and moved her into the deeper trench until daybreak, when they called and notified Pedersen to come retrieve his horse. Time was ticking by, and the 5th Marines had only a few days to go before they would be rotated out to reserve camp at the end of March. Unfortunately, that plan was about to change. As you are probably beginning to imagine by now, Everything that had happened to this point on the Jamestown line became prelude to a horrific event. This event would come to be known as the Battle of the Nevada Cities. Now, when I describe this battle from the perspective of the units providing covering fire and support, firing across the valleys from one hilltop to another, it's really easy to forget exactly what it is that they were covering. In the book Reckless, author Tom Clavin provides in great detail description of the close fighting that took place between March 26th and 30th, 1953. 
if you have an interest in this, I do recommend reading Clavin's book. You'll find more information about it in the show notes at atimeforhorses.com forward slash pride of the marines. I'm going to share a few pieces from his story to set this up. Quote, the Nevada City's complex had increased in importance strategically the longer the war had continued, and thus was of critical importance in the early spring of 1953. The outposts were the key to keeping the Jamestown line intact. If the Marines were forced to withdraw to the other side of the Imjin River, that would expose the army units on the right, and they would have to retreat across the Samachon River. The door would be open to Seoul. The communists would have weighty leverage at the Panmunjom truce talks, pretty much game over for the Allies. Refusing to accept whatever crumbs the communists offered meant, at best, an indefinitely extended war, requiring many more men and much more materiel to recapture lost territory. Even if President Eisenhower was willing to authorize that, few Americans would stomach it. A truce would equal defeat for the United Nations and their forces, and essentially, the lives lost during the previous three-plus years would have been wasted. The Nevada City's complex of outposts had to be held, whatever it took, and it would take a lot. End quote. According to Andrew Gear, the three hills were named by Marine Lieutenant Colonel Tony Caputo, whose battalion was the first to occupy them. It's said that Caputo named them after the Nevada gaming towns because, as he put it, it's a gamble if we can hold them. How prophetic he would be. The three hills were arrayed in sort of a triangle, with Carson to the left, half a mile from the MLR, and Reno, the farthest away, in the middle, about a mile from the line. Vegas, about half a mile to the right of Reno, was about three-quarters of a mile from the line. None of them was well fortified at all, especially Reno, which faced the north and had no bunkers, just fighting holes. None of them could hold more than one platoon, or 40 to 50 men. There was also a listening post called Reno Block that was manned only at night, between the line and Reno. The conditions on these posts were so rough, and they were so stressful to hold, that the units were rotated one week on an outpost, followed by two weeks on the MLR. As the 5th Marines were holding these outposts and the rest of the Jamestown line, waiting for their rotation out to reserve camp, the spring thaw was also turning the icy hillsides to slick mud, and the commanders began to get a sense that the enemy was preparing for something unpleasant. Andrew Gear told it this way, quoting Colonel Lou Walt, commander of the 5th Marine Regiment. I quote, the day of March 26, 1953, was normal during daylight working hours, with no indication of what was to come, except for a large amount of incoming, which had been occurring for several days previous. However, at precisely 1900, the enemy launched a coordinated attack by fire all along our regimental front. At the same time, he attacked the center MLR regiment by fire and conducted limited diversionary attacks in platoon and squad strength against outposts Dagmar, Hetty, and Esther in that sector. Also at 1900, there were several sightings of enemy units moving in front of the Korean Marine Corps sector. Gear continues. Shadings of night were growing swiftly as the enemy began his preparatory bombardment. Heavy mortar and artillery fire blanketed the MLR. The heaviest fire of all was on the three outposts. As night came on, the sight of it was terrifying. The flashing eruptions ran the ridgelines and cascaded into the valleys, and the sound of it was that of twenty tornadoes tearing at a countryside. Throughout the night, fighting of the heaviest, most violent sort developed in and around the Nevada complex. By midnight, the initial stage of the battle had gone to the enemy. Reno and Vegas were lost, and the fate of the Marines manning the positions was unknown. Carson had held after being put to a severe strain. 
Reinforcing units sent along the Reno rope became heavily involved with superior enemy forces and were halted short of their objective. A similar setback met the unit dispatched to aid the Vegas garrison. At two o'clock in the morning, Walt was forced to a fateful decision. He requested permission to withdraw all troops to the rear of the MLR, to reorganize, and launch a coordinated attack to retake Reno and Vegas during daylight. The remaining hours of darkness would be used to evacuate the wounded and dead. End quote. The shelling was like nothing they had ever seen. Janet Barrett quotes Sergeant Jack Nelmark, leader of a 60-millimeter mortar crew, who said, quote, That night, the stuff was pouring in like rain. It felt like the Chinese wanted to get rid of all their ammo before the armistice, and they were dumping it on our heads. End quote. Clavin said it this way, quote, the early evening darkness was shattered when, at approximately 7 p.m., an intense shower of 60-millimeter and 92-millimeter mortar rounds and 76-millimeter artillery shells fell on outposts Reno and Carson. It was estimated that in the first 20 minutes, close to 1,200 rounds hit the second outpost. Even when the shelling slowed, it was later estimated that until 8 p.m., a mortar round fell on Carson every 40 seconds. During the worst of it, there was nothing for the Marines on Carson to do but burrow down and eat dirt. End quote. Having already lost the two forward posts and taken heavy losses, and after withdrawing their remaining troops behind the line, Colonel Walt made a courageous decision they would completely decimate the post at Reno, eliminating any remaining installations that the enemy could use to support their assault. They would use their air support and artillery to hammer the top right off the hill at Reno, and they would retake Vegas. The counterattack would begin in the morning. If you, like me, have known and worked with performance horses, you can imagine how Reckless was behaving. They know what's about to happen. The night you ship them into a showgrounds before a big show, especially if their work is very taxing or creates an adrenaline boost, they don't want to eat. They just want to do their job. They are ready and primed for action. I'm sure that at this point, Reckless was also feeding off the vibe of the men as well. They knew what was going to happen the next day, and they knew it was going to be brutal. Reckless could hear the shelling, too. She knew what was happening, and she was ready for someone to wave the starting flag. You can also imagine her eagerness to start setting up the rifle positions at first light. Once her saddle was in place, she would have hustled over the ridge and down into the box canyon to pick up her first load of shells. On March 27th, the action jumped off at 0930. As planned, the artillery and air support went in first to break down the enemy's defenses. Later in the morning, the recoilless rifles switched to smoke and blanketed the observation posts so that the infantry could advance. The Chinese came on in astounding numbers, and while losses on both sides were heavy, they were much heavier on the Chinese side. Even so, by the end of the first full day of fighting, the Marines had made their way only as far as the lower trenches at Vegas, and they withdrew again to the main line. The recoilless rifle units had played a very real role in the action on that first full day of fighting, and the little red horse had carried nearly all the ammunition to supply them. The numbers from this first day are simply astounding, and they are the ones that accompany this story the most. By Pedersen's count, on the first full day of fighting, Little Reckless delivered 386 shells, 9,000 pounds of ammunition, from the ASP to the firing positions. She made 51 round trips and covered an estimated 35 miles. That's pretty impressive by itself, but add to it, that she also carried wounded men down the hill on many of those trips. She also did almost all of that work 
completely on her own. Reckless was more than just a warhorse. She was a Marine, bred, trained, and conditioned to do a job, and she did her job as well as anyone in her unit. Here's the thing, though. It didn't end there at the end of that day. Reckless had dinner and some shut-eye, but it wasn't long before she was rustled out of the sack and had to leave her shelter to go back to work. Barrett interviewed a number of the men who fought at the Nevada cities. And like so many aspects of her life, the stories just go on and on. Evidence would have it that she didn't get much sleep between the 26th and 30th of March. I'll let Barrett tell this part. Quote, Nights, working forward of the MLR, Reckless again had to cross rice paddies, these between the main line and Vegas, to deliver ammunition to the mortar crews. The rounds were smaller and lighter, and packaged differently than the recoilless rifle shells, and the guys had to figure out how to strap a number of boxes together and make the loads comfortable for her to carry. Jack Nelmark said that without the help she gave his crew, they would have run out of ammunition. Coming across the rice paddies, she knew instinctively to stay on the narrow path, perhaps detecting an odor from the buried mines that warned her off. If she had stepped on one, she would have detonated it with her weight, for sure, Nelmark added. And she made the runs all by herself. But then, no one could keep up with her anyway. She was that fast. Nelmark saw Reckless each of the three nights they fought for Vegas. I was just amazed that she could do that much. She was trained, but just the same. It was unbelievable. Those nights... She also moved dead and wounded back to safety, carrying them across her back. Some trips, she would bring up a load of ammunition and bring back a Marine. End quote. The battle for Outpost Vegas raged on. The Marines would attack and advance and then be turned back until in the middle of the afternoon on March 28th, when 30 Marines took possession of the hill. Unfortunately, that would not be enough. The Chinese came back again on each of the next two days, until ultimately, they backed down. Vegas, Carson, and Reno Block were back in UN hands, and Reno itself was a pile of rubble. Casualties on the Chinese side were many times those of the Marines. But even so, losses were brutal. As they refused to give way and then held their positions against the return assaults, the persistence of the American troops is legendary. Companies were reduced by more than half. Incoming fire rained down at the rate of 500 rounds per minute. And it's reported that Reckless was supplying ammunition at such a clip that one of the recoilless rifles overheated. The barrel turned to white heat and had to be replaced. I can't say if that's true or not, but it's part of the legend. I could go on with this, and I will in a minute, but I want to take a second here to encourage you to pick up one of these great books about the story of the little red horse named Reckless. They are all available in electronic form, two as audible audiobooks, and of course, they can all be purchased in the more traditional handheld form. Each of the authors has his or her own take on the story. Andrew Gear's book, Reckless Pride of the Marines, was the first. Gear was actually there, and he served with Reckless. He also interviewed at length several of the men involved while he was still in country, and memories were fresh. Even so, his story has a few missing pieces, and it's from him that we get the backstory about the horse's early life as Flame of the Morning with the Korean man he called Kim Hook Moon. We can't know how much of that was true, but as the original tale and the only one written while Reckless was still alive, it has been taken as the authoritative source on most of the events that took place during the time between her enlistment and the book's publication in 1955. Janet Barrett's book, They Called Her Reckless, published in 2013, is the most carefully fact-checked of the four stories, particularly regarding the horse herself. 
This one has an excellent discussion of the history of horse racing and the native horses of Korea that is not included elsewhere. Like the other two modern books, Barrett includes direct accounts from many of Reckless's fellow Leathernecks who were still alive to be interviewed. The 2014 book, known simply as Reckless by Tom Clavin, draws heavily on the story as recounted by Gear and acknowledges the problems that creates, but he's fleshed it out with very thorough research on the war itself from primary sources. This book includes riveting description of the military and political actions surrounding the story of Reckless, and it's really the best of the three newer stories on that topic. Finally, also published in 2014, is Sergeant Reckless, America's War Horse, written by Robin Hutton. This book retells Gear's story as well, carrying on to the end of the horse's life in the present day. Hutton has written a charming account of her efforts to memorialize Reckless in time for the 60th anniversary at the end of the Korean War in 2013. Spoiler alert, she pulled it off. But it's a great story, and the book made the New York Times Animals bestseller list in September and October of 2014, as well as being judged Best Equine Book of 2014 in the American Horse Publications Awards and receiving the Nonfiction Literature Award at the Equus Film Festival in 2016. In any case, this is a story that touches people's hearts. It's a story about this little horse who was so darn committed to the work that needed to be done. But it's also a story about the guys she lived with and loved, and who loved her so very much in return. The Battle of the Nevada Cities, also known as the Battle for Outpost Vegas, extended from the evening of March 26th, when the enemy assault began, until early afternoon on March 30th, 1953. Odds are good that Reckless covered something on the order of 35 to 50 miles a day during that time, based on Pedersen's rough calculations from the first day, and the fact that she worked the night shift as well. Now, I have ridden 35 miles and more in one day many times, and multiple days in a row as well. That alone is a long way and a lot of work for any horse. But you need to consider, too, the hills she was climbing and descending. For a horse, up and down are equally challenging. And consider the load she carried— Recent research suggests that carrying more than 10% of a horse's body weight affects their way of going and is considered a load. I find, personally, that a large pony or a small horse generally has little trouble carrying a load of 15% of their own body weight or so, and I've known many horses that routinely carried a rider intact totaling over 20% of their body weight for some really long distances. It's tricky, though. A rider is considered what we call live weight, because they can adjust their balance with the horse. At least if they have some riding skill, they can. This is distinguished from dead weight, which is a pack like the one Reckless carried. Carrying dead weight is much more work, because the horse has to balance the load by controlling it and staying underneath it. It's like a person wearing a backpack. Of course, it is a little easier once the horse has developed the strength to do it. A 1,000-pound horse with a rider weighing 200 pounds, including tack, who cover 100 miles over three days, will have trained relentlessly for years and invested in a carefully fitted saddle in order to manage that successfully. Reckless had been in training for just five months and was wearing a used pack saddle. Now, as I said before, I'm pretty sure that this little horse of 12 or 13 hands and not a really stocky build wouldn't have weighed more than about 500 pounds at this time in her life. There are pictures of her with the recoilless rifle, which we know measured 6 foot 10 barrel and breech. We also see her standing with her friends and not reaching up to their armpits, so we can get pretty close in estimating just how tall she was, and from that, estimate her weight. With her pack saddle and six rounds, 160 pounds or so, the load is probably... 30% of her body weight. With eight rounds, we're talking about at least 210 pounds, or over 40% of her body weight, although there isn't really any evidence that she ever did that. 
even with her regular load of four shells, we're still talking about 120 pounds, close to 25% of her body weight. Of course, sometimes Reckless carried ammunition with other Marines, but most of the time during the battle for the Nevada cities, this remarkable little horse did her job completely on her own, of her own choice. It wasn't that she was a trained animal doing a practiced routine. It was that she had been taught what had to be done, and she chose to do it in harm's way. Reckless was wounded twice by shrapnel, once above her left eye and another time on her left flank, for which she would later be decorated with two purple hearts. But still, she carried on. In spite of the relentless shelling, shells colliding in air and raining down on the hillsides, the little mare climbed up and scrambled down, carrying packloads of ammunition in and wounded soldiers out. As time went on and adrenaline faded, she climbed the hills more slowly, walking the inclines and stopping to rest on the way. But she didn't stop until the fighting was done. However, after the battle for the Nevada cities... The war would not actually be over for some weeks. The Turkish army was moved in and the Marines out. After a well-earned period of R&R, the reckless riflemen and their namesake Marine returned to Changdan to support the 2nd Battalion. This made a full circle, back where she had started out. There was more fighting, and reckless and the guns were moved up and down the line. The Turkish troops had been positioned to hold the Nevada cities after they had been retaken, But after a time, they were pinned down and then finally ordered out of Vegas. The Marines fought hard to hold the line after that. It was not an easy period, but Reckless and her guys didn't have any more times like those last few days of March. A truce was signed on July 27, 1953, and a ceasefire was established. As a matter of fact, that ceasefire is still in place to this day. Formal conclusion to the hostilities has never been made, and the demilitarized zone that separates North Korea from South Korea is manned on the south side by 28,000 United States Marines. Reckless stayed in Korea until the end of the following year, 1954, a period that was marked by the gradual departure of most of her friends as they were rotated home following the ceasefire. There was work laying calm wire, peanut butter, bacon and eggs, strawberry jam, and beer. Reckless was kidnapped and held for ransom by the 4.2 mortar unit to raise money for a fundraiser. Donations poured in, and the Little Red Mare raised over $28,000 to benefit the Iwo Jima Memorial Fund. It was said of Reckless that she seemed to have forgotten she was a horse, and that may well have been true. It was also during this period, after the armistice, that Corporal Reckless was promoted to sergeant. A parade was held in her honor, and her acts of courage were read aloud during a company formation. The men made arrangements with a tailor in Seoul, who fashioned a handsome red silk blanket with gold trim. They had quite a shindig, according to Gear, overseen by General Randolph McCall Pate, who was the top Marine commander of forces in Korea. Quote, it was a colorful, impressive ceremony. With the company paraded, the general trooped the line and was then conducted to the platform. Sergeant Elmer Lively and Technical Sergeant Dave Woods escorted Reckless to proper position, and Master Sergeant John Strange read the citation. General Pate pinned the stripes to the new blanket and Reckless became a sergeant in the Marine Corps. It was a happy day. End quote. It took that whole year before funding and logistic details could be resolved such that Reckless was able to be brought to the United States. It's ironic that I almost wanted to say brought home right there because she was native Korean. But like any good Marine, home for her had come to be with her fellow Marines. 
The timing was such that they were able to use halftime of the football game between the 7th Army Division and the 1st Marine Division as the time to announce the rotation of Sergeant Reckless to the United States. The announcement read as follows, quote, Rotation Ceremony, Halftime, 1st Marine Division versus 7th Army Division football game, October 17, 1954. General Hogaboom, Officers and men of the 1st Marine Division, guests, and Sergeant Reckless, Pride of the Marines. Reckless began her career in the Marine Corps in October 1952, when she was purchased in Seoul by the 75mm recoilless rifle platoon of the anti-tank company, 5th Marines. Her boot camp was different from that of the ordinary Marine. She was trained to carry 75 recoilless rifle ammunition during actual combat. For outstanding conduct during this period, she was promoted to the rank of corporal. It was in the battle for the outpost Vegas that Reckless proved her merit as a Marine. With enemy artillery and mortar rounds coming in at the rate of 500 a minute, she carried 75-millimeter shells into the front lines, each yard as a passage under fire. Reckless made a total of 51 trips to the outpost during the battle for Vegas to keep the guns supplied with ammunition. Disregard for her own safety and conduct under fire were an inspiration to the troops and in keeping with the highest traditions of the naval service. Corporal Reckless received her meritorious promotion to sergeant on April 10, 1954. The citation reads in part, Corporal Reckless performed the duties of ammunition carrier from October 1952 to July 27, 1953 in a superb manner. Reckless's attention and devotion to duty make her well qualified for promotion to the rank of sergeant. Her absolute dependability while on missions under fire contributed materially to the success of many battles. Rotation to the United States is her due. And in a few weeks, she will be on her way to Camp Pendleton, home of the 1st Marine Division. Good luck, Sergeant Reckless, and bon voyage. End quote. Oh, and by the way, the Marines beat Army 23-7. to There was a considerable struggle over how they were going to get Reckless home, although I don't think anyone really doubted that it would happen at any time. It was just one of those tangles of bureaucratic red tape that took a while before everyone figured out exactly which piece to pull on. You see, there were several problems. One was that Reckless wasn't exactly military property. This is probably good because, strictly speaking, as property of the U.S. government, she may not have gotten the same treatment. She belonged, in the best sense of ownership that anyone could agree on, to the men of the 5th Marines Anti-Tank Company, who were her family. Legal ownership, in the sense that when he gave someone at the track $250, they let him leave with her, belonged to Lieutenant Eric Pedersen. As private property, the military could not expend funds for her transportation home. Fortunately, Lieutenant Colonel Gear's first story in the Saturday Evening Post had spread her name far enough that the owner of State's steamship line was motivated to give Reckless free passage to San Francisco on their ship, the SS Pacific Transport. Her handler at the time, PFC William Moore, would be able to accompany her. But again, the military wouldn't pay his way. Stories vary on this one, too, but in the end, according to Robin Hutton, it was Andrew Gear who paid Moore's passage. Again, has had sort of been the theme on this project, which they were soon calling Operation Horse Shift, there was a little problem in that the SS Pacific Transport was leaving from Yokohama, and in the way was a little thing called the Korea Strait. So, in the spirit of do it now and answer questions later, everyone seems to have just looked the other way as a four-footed piece of cargo was loaded onto an R4Q flying boxcar at Kimpo Airfield and surreptitiously flown across the short hop to Yokohama, where Reckless met the Pacific Transport as planned and set sail for San Francisco. There were further complications regarding Sergeant Reckless's status as a more agricultural species. 
horses being imported from Japan had to be tested and shown negative, with blood drawn on board by a U.S. Department of Agriculture veterinarian for two infectious diseases before being allowed to set foot on American soil. The complication involved the fact that her arrival in port was going to be tight up against the invitation she had received to attend the Marine Corps 179th birthday banquet. She had been invited by Major General Evans Ames, Managing Director of the Marine Corps Memorial Club, to attend as guest of honor. In order for her to get to the party on time, they had to get special dispensation from the Ag Department for her to go to the banquet and spend time in quarantine until the tests came back clean. As though that wasn't enough, Reckless was happy to add her own little hiccup to the sequence of events. It seems the folks looking after Reckless at this point hadn't known her long enough to know her proclivity for munching on things left within her reach, and when nobody was looking... Reckless ripped up her own dress uniform, decorations and all, the day before she was due to arrive. It was lucky that her friend Pedersen heard the news. He and his wife Kay had already arrived in town, and they quickly arranged with a local tack shop for a new blanket, which the shop had lettered with Sergeant Reckless's name and division in time for her ship to make port. Starting on that day... Reckless was a legitimate Marine Corps celebrity. Hold on there. Our story isn't over yet. I'll be back in a few weeks with the conclusion of Reckless's remarkable story in which our heroine serves her adopted country on the home front and has a rather eventful retirement. If you're listening to the show on the web, you may already know that our website is atimeforhorses.com, and you'll find the notes for this show at atimeforhorses.com forward slash pride of the marines. In the meantime, you know what makes a good podcast great? More listeners. So please, if you haven't done so yet, do the three R's. Go to your podcatcher of choice and rate, review, and recommend the show. That's how people out there in the interwebs can find us. You can like, follow, or add us, and then share, tweet, or tell someone the old-fashioned way that you are enjoying our show. If you're new to the concept of listening to a podcast, I'm really glad to hear it. You can subscribe to the show for free and never miss an episode. Just go to atimeforhorses.com forward slash subscribe for links to the various places where you can find us. Thanks for giving me your ear space. I'll see you next time.